Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day special, Unifying America from the CBS Audio Network. I'm CBS News political contributor Jamal Simmons. Selected in 1985 by Mrs. Coretta Scott King to edit and publish the papers of her late husband, Stanford University historian Claiborne Carson has devoted most of his professional life to the study of Martin Luther King Jr. and the movements Dr. King inspired. Executive producer Paul Woodhull interviewed Dr. Carson on January 6, 2021, as violent protesters stormed the U.S. Capitol in support of Donald Trump. Multiple people were killed as a result. Dr. Carson, as we are recording this interview, a violent protest has erupted at the Capitol just several blocks from where I'm sitting. And we're seeing pro-Trump supporters take over the Capitol. There were reports of gunshots fired and tear gas being deployed. And I wanted to get your perspective on this in light of the legacy of Dr. King. And I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts about the protest, the violent protests that we're seeing happen in real time as we're talking? Well, I I put it in the context of what's been going on in the country over the past year. And that is, we've had uh, a year of Black Lives Matter protests, trying to look at the question of how Black people are treated in this country. And here we have an example, as we speak, of white people going into the nation's capital and stopping the process of selecting our next president. And I'm asking the question in my head, what if those protesters were black? Would police respond the way they've responded with this of not taking it seriously to begin with, even though this was threatened? Typically, the response to any kind of black protest is to overreact, to bring in a level of policing that is way beyond what is required to contain a a mostly peaceful protest. And here you have an act of violence. I mean, when you take over something, uh, a building or a house uh, uh, without permission, that's violence. And the the response is, oh, well, you know, we're just not prepared for this. So I I think it, to me, what is happening uh, is, is an example of what's happened in this nation, is that there is 
what part of the purpose of the Black Lives Matter protest was to say that there is this thing called white privilege, racial privilege, and that often we don't recognize that. We don't recognize the fact that a a black person with with or without a weapon is seen quite differently by law enforcement than a white person, and that that's why these protests happened. And and here is a vivid example of that of that difference. Uh, so it's uh, to me it, this this whole year has been uh, an object lesson in what's wrong uh, in this country. Dr. Carson, there's somewhat of a historical parallel between what we're seeing here in the capital of the United States at the Capitol building and what happened in uh, 1967 when the Black Panthers entered the state capitol in Sacramento, California, carrying weapons. A big difference is the Black Panthers broke no laws, destroyed no property, and peacefully exited the Sacramento Capitol building. How would you compare or contrast these two events? You know, that that event was highly controversial. People were arrested. Some of them went to jail for it. Um, But most clearly, it it was part of the, the way in which the Black Panther Party made itself a target. From that point on, they were they were considered a target, and uh, I, so I think that I compared that what they did in, in Sacramento um, back in I think it was 1966 to what happened at the Michigan Capitol uh, earlier this year, where again an armed group of people went into the state capitol, and uh, they were able to do that with impunity and with not so much controversy. I mean, it, it was out of the news within days. So uh, what I guess the question is, what are we learning from all of this? What are, what are Americans learning from all this? And uh, I, I think that what they're learning is that in terms of the history of, of violence in America, it is more likely to come from white racists who are in the Klan and in various other kinds of, of groups throughout American history. Um, you know, we don't have a history of, of black people lynching white people. It's, it's the other way around, um, often with uh, mob violence. We, we forget, or at least most many Americans forget, that race riots are as likely in American history to be white race riots and that more often kill people of another race. And in terms of what we call black riots, it's mostly white policemen killing black people for looting stores. In terms of the history of this country, we have far more examples of people invading black communities and killing black people with impunity, often with the help of the police. That's that's the story of the Tulsa race riot. That's the story of the East St. Louis race riot, the Chicago race riot, the Detroit race riot. These were white mobs entering black communities and killing black people and getting away with it. So I think we have this very uh, biased view, violence in America. And, and it pervades uh, the issue of policing, which has produced so much protest of, of why a black person walking away uh, is considered more of a threat than a white teenager with a rifle going right through police lines to kill protesters. You know, if that, if that white teenager in Wisconsin, Kenosha, had been black. Can you imagine a black teenager walking through police lines with a rifle? And uh, you know, this this 
you know, it, it's it's frustrating to me that why we tend to read the evening news through a racial lens in, in this country. As Americans, we don't really see reality through the same lens. And that makes it very difficult to find solutions to our problems. Well, um, one of the hallmarks of Dr. King's call for racial equality, for civil rights, for workers' rights, and, and for human rights, uh, one of those hallmarks was peaceful protest. And that's a big difference to what we're seeing today at the Capitol building here in Washington, D.C. How do you, as the head of the King Institute at Stanford, how do you, how do you view the violence that we're seeing perpetuated today in contrast to what Dr. King's message was? Well, I think, first of all, um, I've been thinking a lot about Dr. King since uh, as the election was going on in Georgia. I think at the time of his death, and certainly during the last few years of his life, what he was concerned about was to try to find a way of avoiding just what we have in this country, and that is these, this divide along racial lines. He was always reaching out to white people to support the movement, and there were whites who were part of the civil rights movement. He was a coalition builder. He was a person who welcomed white support, and he was very hopeful that you could build a multiracial movement toward social justice. And he strongly believed, for example, when he led the Poor People's Campaign, well, he understood that there are more poor whites than there are poor blacks. And if they could get together and understand that they have a common problem called poverty, that in itself would be a step toward building a better America and, and building better race relations. I think that that was one of the things that was behind uh, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs. At the same time we were passing civil rights legislation, we were passing legislation about Medicare. We were passing legislation about student loan programs. We had a war on poverty that turned out to be a minor skirmish against poverty, and then we surrendered. Um, but we, we had all these possibilities for building a movement that was uh, going to make America more just and more democratic. Unfortunately, the race issue was used as a way of countering that. Richard Nixon's Southern strategy was designed to pull white people out of this democratic coalition that they had been in since the New Deal, that elected Lyndon Johnson with an overwhelming majority in 1964. But by 1968, tens of millions of white people left the Democratic Party for the Republican Party. Uh, the Southern strategy worked, and America has never been the same again. Coming up, we will hear more from Dr. Claiborne Carson, the director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day special, Unifying America. From the CBS Audio Network, I'm CBS News political contributor Jamal Simmons. This is the Martin Luther King Jr. Day special, Unifying America. From the CBS Audio Network, I'm CBS News political contributor Jamal Simmons. We continue our conversation with Dr. Claiborne Carson, the director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University. Dr. Carson, we, we really have two worlds here in the United States, and the fault lines are pretty clearly defined by race. Things like infant mortality, maternal mortality, education 
cancer and COVID-19 deaths. The long list of those disparities goes very wide and very deep. And we have to ask the question, why is that? Why is it that people tolerate a infant mortality rate uh, that's higher than uh, many countries in the world that Cuba, uh, a, a pregnant woman, has more chance of surviving pregnancy than in the United States. I mean, why? You know, they're, they're a much poorer country than the United States, but we spend enormous amount of our wealth paying for an, a health system that is um, enormously expensive and enormously inefficient in terms of keeping the American people healthy. So uh, I think the main reason is that we have always had this sense of that capitalism and freedom are the same thing and that, um, that our system is the best. We don't tend to take a critical look at it like people in other countries, in Europe, for example, um, or even Canada, uh, we we tend to say that you know, because we do it this way, it must be the best way, and uh, so we end up with a with the most expensive medical care system in the world, but not the best. And and I think young people are are faced with this. I mean, you know, young people face the problem of of being able to afford a college education without going into a debt of tens of thousands of dollars, sometimes even more than that. Um, you know, starting out adulthood with a debt hanging over your head, how did we get to that? You know, I could go to UCLA for roughly about $100 a semester. And I was able to work my way through school. That would be impossible today, unless somehow you, you managed to find a job that paid a considerable salary uh, while you're going to school. Uh, so a lot of these things have happened. And I think for young people, they're asking the question, why? You know, why? That's that's why they listen to a Bernie Sanders when he talks about, uh, you know, paying off all of the college debt and, and making higher education freely available. You know, it sounds like a great idea. Uh, to to many young people, and uh, why not? Why wouldn't it? You've mentioned several times an American future with greater racial justice is based upon a generational change. But some people might argue that we've had that hope before that we're somehow on a precipice of a post-racial society, and that hasn't come to be. I know many people who would argue that a lot of what we're seeing uh, across the country in terms of the reactions of the people like Proud Boys and other pro-Trump supporters, and and also uh, in the ascendancy of Donald Trump and his reign as president, they, they would say that that is in fact a reaction, a correction in their minds to the Obama presidency. I'm not naive about the strong historical roots of, of racism at every stage in American history, from the antebellum period where slavery was the law of the land. Uh, you know, we had the Dred Scott decision where the Supreme Court ruled that black people were not basically citizens, you know, that they, their citizenship rights could be taken away and, and they could be made slaves. 
after the Civil War, we had the backlash against Reconstruction. We had a backlash against the civil rights reforms of the 1960s. So, so I think there is that continuity cataloged as, as part of uh, American history, that strong strain of racial superiority, which led to slavery, it led to imperialism, led to the sense that, you know, that we have a manifest destiny to eliminate basically Native Americans and push them off of whatever land they have. And it's often associated with violence. You know, what other country where, you know, you have a list, we call it the Bill of Rights, of the basic rights of American citizens, the second on the list is the right to bear arms. I would challenge anyone to find any other country in the world that places that importance on the right to have, to, to be able to use violence to protect what you have. So it's, it's ingrained in American society. And, and I think that that's going to take a lot of re-education. And, and I think one of the things about the younger generation is that they are getting a better education about the reality of American history. You know, they, they don't read the same textbooks that I read when I was, you know, in high school. They read textbooks that don't talk about slavery in the same way that they did then. Uh, they read a textbook that talks about slavery in a much more realistic way that, uh, you know, we have, they celebrate the Martin Luther King birthday. There is a sense that the heroic role of America is to become more democratic. And, and I think that has made a difference. It might not have made a difference for their parents. It might not have made a difference for all of them. You know, some of the proud boys are young people. But I think that the overwhelming majority of people who went to the polls in Georgia have tried to free themselves from that legacy. They've tried to look at, you know, is Reverend Warnock, is, is, is a black candidate and a Jewish candidate running for office? And am I going to allow my prejudice against black people or against Jewish people from just kind of objectively comparing which of these candidates seem to be more, more concerned about people like me? And once they can make that kind of realistic judgment, you know, you have an outcome like you did in Georgia, which is a Southern state. Uh, so that's the hope that more and more people are coming of age where um, the Jim Crow system was just something they can read about in their history books. Um, they can, uh, they are more likely uh, to, to see figures like Martin Luther King as heroic figures rather than dangerous um, figures like he was seen by the FBI and many Americans of that time. Um, so I think that that's, that's part of what gives me hope about the future is that when I went to a Black Lives Matter protest here in Palo Alto, most of the people there were white certainly not black. Um, there's not a lot of black people in Palo Alto. But, you know, there were 3,000 people who marched to City Hall and in a peaceful protest here. So, and I see, and I walk around my neighborhood and you see Black Lives Matter signs in, in their yards. 
so, so we do have a rather pronounced shift. And, and part of that is that they're more likely to know black people as equals or even work for a black person uh, than ever before in American history. They're more likely to see a black person as uh, Barack Obama, who, um, whatever you think politically, was a far more appealing figure than the person who replaced him. You know, the, you know it, it is interesting that, uh, that Donald Trump um, was supported by so many white people, even though here is a person, according to everyone who's known him through most of his life, has never shown an ounce of empathy for those less fortunate than himself. Uh, I don't think empathy is a word you would apply to him. So why, why vote for a person like that? Well, part of it is that he represented that sense of privilege that, you know, they envied him for his privilege. They envied him for his wealth. And they envied him for his uh, ability to speak in politically incorrect ways. Uh, so, so that, you know, that's a factor. And, you know, there's going to be Donald Trump's in the future. You know, hopefully we won't elect another one as president. But, but I think that that shows that some attitudes have not changed as dramatically as I would have wanted. Well, as um, Dr. King said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Yes, and uh, unfortunately, uh, moral arcs uh, outlive us. <laughs> and um, but I but I think it it is bending toward justice. And the question is, how much damage will be done before that happens? Dr. Carson, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Special, Unifying America from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jamal Simmons. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Special, Unifying America, from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jamal Simmons. Reverend Jim Wallace is the founder and ambassador of the social justice organization Sojourners. He spoke with Reverend Michael Curry, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. 
the Most Reverend Michael Bruce Curry serves as President and Chief Executive Officer, Chair of the Executive Council, and Chief Pastor of the Episcopal Church. So my brother, uh, Bishop Michael Curry, and dear brother, we're in a moment uh, that, um, on the one hand, the issues at stake are not new, as you and I know, they go back a long time. But there is a moment of crisis here that we have to acknowledge. MLK Day is a big day for both of us. Usually we're preaching sermons or doing things in churches. And, and of course, that Monday is a service day. But for a long time, we've just said, kind of taken for granted. We all agree with Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his vision for America of a beloved community and a multiracial democracy. So on this day, let's show our service in the community. We're in a whole different place now. What's at stake is, in fact, his vision of a beloved community and a multiracial democracy. A violent insurrection has taken place at the Capitol already, and ones are now planned, the FBI tells us, for all our 50 capitals and again at the nation's capital. And everything that he believed in and fought for and lived and died for is literally at stake right now. Now, you are right, my brother. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm mindful of uh, Dr. King's words. Uh, well, his last book was, was simply titled, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community. And, and uh, he often said um, that we will either learn to live together as brothers and sisters or perish together as fools. The choice is ours, chaos or community. He started saying that kind of thing between 65 and 67 or so. I think he published the book in 67 um, as the Vietnam War was escalating, as there were protests in the streets, um, as many of our cities uh, burned um, and riots of, of the poor crying out to be heard. Um, the nation was in, in disarray, not quite like this, but in disarray. And that's when he asked the question, where do we go from here, chaos or community? I think his wisdom on that point um, was that in moments of crisis, those are also moments of decision. When we as a nation and we as a people have to decide where are we going to go from here, chaos or beloved community? Are we committed to becoming the beloved community, which would really be a shining city on a hill? Um, or we are, are we content to descend into the chaos, um, the abyss of hatred, animosity, and bigotry? And we have a choice to make. I believe that we will choose and that most of us want to become that beloved community. I, I just believe that about most of us, but we've got to make a commitment to do it. It's kind of like a revival where you got to say yes first, and then you act on that yes. Indeed, and I, I think we're facing this choice of chaos or community right now in the next days ahead leading up to this inauguration. When I hear FBI agents this morning literally saying, well, there's been infiltration of this movement of white supremacists into our law enforcement. We're gonna, the snipers will have to watch not just the crowd, but the cops. This is a whole, a whole moment here. And uh, he also was very clear, as we both know, saying that the peace, um, uh, peace requires justice. You and I know this isn't a political choice, a partisan choice. This is a, this is a matter of faith. Jim, I, I tell you, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and you know, the um, I mean, I'm mindful of, you know, you, on the great seal of the United States is the, the eagle with above the words e pluribus unum from many one. Um, and those words um, come from the writing of the writings of Cicero from the Roman Republic. And Cicero said, when each person loves the other, 
as much as himself, it makes one out of many possible. Um, the, the, the way of selfishness, my tribe, my group, uh, my political party, my religion, my whatever, that will not serve us now. We have got to, we have got to live together as we, as Archbishop Tutu in the um, South African tradition speaks of Ubuntu. Um, I am because we are. Um, that we must live for we, for the common good, for the public good. The words public good are actually in the Constitution. That comes from the ancient, the writings of the ancient Romans, where people think beyond self and think for the good um, of the common weal, of the commonwealth, the common good. Um, and I, I tell you, that's a commitment. That is, that's not, that's not a political commitment. That is a moral and spiritual commitment that has practical consequences for our polity and how we live together. So you are absolutely right. And the truth is that's the heart of the American experiment. In spite of the fact we have not lived up to it, that is the, the motto of this country, e pluribus unum, from many one. Not one religion, not one political party, not, not one this or that, one people living together in justice and truth. I mean, we say that in the Pledge of Allegiance. That's what we say. Coming up, more with Reverend Jim Wallace and Bishop Michael Curry. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm CBS News political contributor Jamal Simmons. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day special, unifying America from the CBS Audio Network. I'm CBS News political contributor Jamal Simmons. And now we return to our conversation with Reverend Jim Wallace and the most Reverend Michael Curry presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. King said, uh, I remember in, uh, when he said, peace is not simply the absence of conflict, but the existence of justice for all people. And right now we're worried about conflict. Deeply, practically, uh, we had lives lost in the U.S. Capitol. We had people injured. We had more being planned that was somehow uh, prevented by some courageous uh, people who stood up for other people. That's what it will take, standing up for each other. When the lawyer, you know, came to Jesus and, and uh, says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus pointed to the Good Samaritan. And the point of that lesson was the Good Samaritan helps someone who is different than him. That's who your neighbor is. We're in the middle of this for our country and unity is crucial. But without the truth telling, Jesus said, you'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. The opposite of that is if we don't know the truth and we're captive to big lies like that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris did not win this election, that big lie, Donald Trump and the highest people in this country has led to this violence. How do we bring the truth back? How do we help people understand what the truth is, uh, not just about an election, but all of us who are committed to be brothers and sisters and neighbors together. That's the core of everything we're taught in all of our traditions. How do we bring the truth back against the lies? How do we love our neighbors as ourselves, particularly those who are different than we are? You know, Jim, I, I think you're right on. In the last few days, I've really been thinking, said, you know, I mean, there's that, that passage in the Hebrew scriptures in, um, in Chronicles. Um, if my people who are called by my name will Humble, them, humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. That word humility, um, um, boy, that, that's, that's a powerful word. And Jesus of Nazareth was very clear um, that it is the humble who will be exalted. Um, and uh, 
and all of our traditions represent and speak about humility. I wonder if this is a moment when we in the United States um, must be humble enough to learn from the experience of others. What, what can South Africa teach us about how you work through this in constructive ways? Um, there is something there in truth and reconciliation. What, what must we do? What might we do to face truths, painful and difficult truths, as best we can, we may not agree, but at least to name and face them and to set in place the things that are necessary to create a just society, that a really just society, and that will move us toward eventual reconciliation. What, what can South Africa teach us? What can New Zealand teach us? Um, which, which has had to learn um, to, to live as a multiracial um, society um, and has actually done things in their constitution, in their organization, in their life together um, to affirm Maori and, and English uh, folk having to live together. I mean, they've done some, there are people in the world, places in the world that have done this. There have been truth and reconciliation commissions in a number of countries. My point is not to just do what others have done, but maybe we can be humble as Americans, as a country. I think we've been humbled, whether we like it or not, to be humble enough to ask others to help us. Well, as you mentioned, Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu has been a mentor for both of us and a dear mentor and friend. And, and he and Nelson Mandela together did this truth and reconciliation. You can't have one without the other. And they made that very clear. And I've heard cries now up, rising up around the country for a truth and reconciliation here in this nation. The truth telling has to be told before reconciliation can happen. There's no cheap grace, to quote Bonhoeffer. There's no cheap reconciliation, no cheap unity. I think we in the faith community have got to call for a national conversation. And, and that's going to require political leaders, religious leaders, um, economic. I mean, that's going to require that's going to require a national. Dis I mean, ultimately, those who lead us in government are going to have to um, claim this high calling and say, this is work we have to do because the democracy is at stake. And, and engaging that work is, involves facing painful truths. Engaging that work also involves what are some of the pathways, what are some of the things that we have to learn to do as a nation in order to make this e pluribus unum possible. We can't do it on autopilot, that's clear. And so, so what do we have to do? What do we have to do in terms of um, education and formation of children, young people and adults in terms of the values that we do share as a nation? Because we do have some common values. What do we have to do to actually um, nurture relationships across difference? Um, 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 and, and, and I mean that very practically. I mean, what do we have to do to create the context where people who differ with each other are actually in relationship with each other? Um, you know, what does the religious community have to do across religious differences? Um, what does the political community have to do across political differences? I mean, to actually ask, those sound like religious questions, but yet the truth of the matter is until we create the context for human and humane relationships where we see each other as fellow children of God, as brothers and sisters, we will be stuck in this mire of my tribe against yours a will to power. This year, MLK Day, as these words are being heard by listeners around the country, comes in the midst of genuine threats uh, to human life uh, in state capitals across the country, in the capital of the United States. 
with an inauguration just days ahead. And so everything that Dr. King talked about is under threat this week. And this time must become a moment in our history where we, beginning with the faith community, we say, yes, we are all the children of God. Yes, we are all neighbors as different as we are from each other. We are neighbors whom God has called us to love one another as we love ourselves. And yes, that means in this nation for the first time, we're going to create a multiracial democracy where all of God's children are equal citizens and treated so. And we as the faith community see that as a vocation, our vocation to make that happen in this country across all of our boundaries. We can make that decision in this moment of conflict and chaos. We can make a decision for that beloved community. And that means for us, we must say, it means a multiracial democracy in this country, something that King lived and died for, and we have to live and die for as well. You know what, Jim? Amen to that. Amen. And you know what? We must believe. We must hope. We must have faith and actually live it. Because if you don't have faith, then you won't believe it. And if you don't believe it, you won't do it. And so this is a time when we must claim hope and faith in spite of what we see. James Russell Lowell, who said at one of the darkest times in American history in the 19th century, he wrote in one of his poems, truth may forever be on the scaffold, wrong may forever be on the throne, yet the scaffold it sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. I believe that, and because I believe that, our work for righteousness and justice and for love will not be in vain. That was Reverend Michael Curry, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. He was speaking with Reverend Jim Wallace, the founder and ambassador of the social justice organization Sojourners. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day special, Unifying America, from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jamal Simmons. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day special, Unifying America, from the CBS Audio Network. I'm CBS News political contributor Jamal Simmons. 
There's so much to celebrate in our commemoration of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It is equally important to remember the shocking and brutal way he died and the toll that this nation endured at the loss of such a great man. Here's how almost 30 million people found out about Dr. King's assassination on the CBS Evening News just minutes after Walter Cronkite learned of his death. Good evening, Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. Officers also reportedly chased and fired on a radio-equipped car containing two white men. Dr. King was standing on the balcony of a second-floor hotel room tonight when, according to a companion, a shot was fired from across the street. In the friend's words, the bullet exploded in his face. Police, who have been keeping a close watch over the Nobel Peace Prize winner because of Memphis' turbulent racial situation, were on the scene almost immediately. They rushed the 39-year-old Negro leader to a hospital where he died of a bullet wound in the neck. Police said they found a high-powered hunting rifle about a block from the hotel, but it was not immediately identified as the murder weapon. Mayor Henry Loeb has reinstated the dusk-to-dawn curfew he imposed on the city last week when a march led by Dr. King erupted in violence. Governor Buford Ellington has called out 4,000 National Guardsmen, and police report that the murder has touched off sporadic acts of violence in a Negro section of the city. In a nationwide television address, President Johnson expressed the nation's shock. America is shocked and saddened by the brutal slaying tonight of Dr. Martin Luther King. I ask every citizen to reject the blind violence that has struck Dr. King, who lived by nonviolence. Dr. King had returned to Memphis only yesterday, determined to prove that he could lead a peaceful mass march in support of striking sanitation workers, most of whom are Negroes. Dr. King had this to say last night about the situation in Memphis. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read, of the freedom of assembly, somewhere I read, of the freedom of speech, somewhere I read, of the freedom of press, somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. There was shock in Harlem tonight when word of Dr. King's murder reached the nation's largest Negro community. Men, women, and children poured into the streets. They appeared dazed. Many were crying. A young Negro said, Dr. King didn't really have to go back to Memphis. Maybe he wanted to prove something. But it seems a good die young. I turn my head when daily man's gone. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day special, Unifying America, from the CBS Audio Network. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcast starting May 8th. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts starting May 1st.